Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. When duty calls, it's hard to keep some people away from the fight. They'll ignore any impediments that might jeopardize their survival, simply out of a desire to defend their home or country. But while a bad leg or limited eyesight might not seem like a hindrance to them, it could put their fellow soldiers in trouble at the worst possible moment. Samuel Whitmore, however, didn't care about any of that. In fact, on the very first day of the Revolutionary War in 1775, he defied all the odds by charging into battle when he should have been at home instead. As the old joke goes, Whitmore was born at a young age in Charlestown, Massachusetts. After education and marriage, he and his wife started a family. Unfortunately, that domestic life would be turned upside down by international conflict. He enlisted with the 3rd Massachusetts Regiment during King George's War, where he fought for the crown. In fact, his involvement with the forces of Colonel Jeremiah Moulton took him all the way up to Nova Scotia, where he helped capture the fortress of Louisbourg from the French. He also managed to capture a beautiful ornate saber belonging to a French officer, which he took home as a souvenir. Some years later, he returned to war, this time against Chief Pontiac of the Ottawa in the Great Lakes region. Fun, unrelated fact, I grew up near the Illinois towns of both Pontiac and Ottawa. It has no bearing on the story, but reading those names compelled me to tell you. And now you know. Chief Pontiac, you see, had taken up arms with other Native Americans against the British. He and his men objected to the deadly policies put forth by General Jeffrey Amherst and attacked a number of English forts in the area, killing dozens of colonists in the process. Whitmore and other English troops went up against Pontiac, killing many of the Native warriors. According to legend, he defeated one adversary in hand-to-hand combat and took a pair of dueling pistols from the warrior's body afterward. Whitmore eventually moved to the town of Monotomy, which exists as part of present-day Arlington, Massachusetts. He became a farmer, and it seemed like his fighting days were over. From now on, any battles would be those of words, not rifles. In 1766, following the British repeal of the Stamp Act, the town elected Whitmore as part of a committee to inform Massachusetts General Court Representative Andrew Boardman on how to vote. Whitmore and the other committee members were wary of the British and their countless acts and taxes. And even though the Stamp Act was repealed this time, they remained suspicious. In their instructions to Boardman, the committee told him to always be watchful of any further danger coming from Parliament. Whitmore was also elected to the Massachusetts Committee of Convention, where he voiced his opposition to various revenue acts. He also spoke out against the king's requirement that Boston provide living quarters for the British soldiers occupying the city. Whitmore's uneasiness only grew. A new war was brewing in the colonies. And this time, despite fighting for the British before, he would defend the people of his province instead. On April 19th of 1775, the British quickly realized that they were outgunned against the colonial Minutemen and retreated from Lexington and Concord to Boston. On their way back to the city, they passed by Samuel Whitmore's farm, where he was tending his fields. When Whitmore caught sight of them, he dropped what he was doing, fetched his musket, and opened fire from behind a stone wall. After his first shot took out one soldier, he dropped his musket, 
pulled out his twin dueling pistols and shot two more. By then, another group of British soldiers had figured out where he was hiding and rushed for him. Before they could reach him, he drew his saber and charged toward them, but the Redcoats had the upper hand. They shot him in the face, then bayoneted him several times before butting him with their rifles. Whitmore was left on the ground, bleeding to death. He was 73 years old. A group of colonial soldiers eventually found him and took him to a doctor a few miles away. Things looked grim, and he wasn't expected to make it through the night, not after such a brutal attack. But survive, he did. Samuel Whitmore was one tough soldier, and he lived for 18 more years, eventually dying in 1793 at the ripe old age of 96. He had spent much of his life fighting, and he never let his age, or being stabbed, shot, and beaten, keep him down. And in the process, he proved the old saying to be true. What doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. The Edo area of Japanese history is something like a bloody soap opera when you really look closely at it. A bunch of regional rulers engaged in territorial disputes, striking alliances to advance their goals and very little effort toward anything even remotely resembling unification. Not to mention the severe class lines preventing any sort of merit-based advancement and focused entirely on bloodlines and birth. It's not exactly the kind of stage where you'd expect to see a hammer blow against inequality but that's exactly what we find in the unsuspecting character of Daimyo Oda Nobunaga. Nobunaga was something of a visionary, with all of the side effects that usually come with it. Audacious, daring, perhaps even a bit, well, unhinged. But he had the bold idea to unify Japan, and he knew he couldn't do it alone. He also knew that in order to accomplish something that had never been done before, he'd probably have to try some things that had never been tried before maybe even with some people who had never been given a chance before. That included giving a peasant like Hideyoshi Toyotomi a chance, and it includes seeing past traditional barriers and recognizing the value in someone like the man who would be known only as Yasuki. When Yasuki arrived in Japan in 1579, he must have been quite the sight for the local populace. Arriving alongside a Jesuit named Alessandro Valignano, Yasuki served as bodyguard for the religious man and an imposing one at that. Yasuki boasted a frame that stood over six feet tall with, according to onlookers, the strength of ten men. And when the average height of a man in Japan at the time was around five feet tall, you can see how he stood out, quite literally. Oda Nobunaga was immediately impressed by Yasuki. Perhaps it was just the spectacle of him, but being the same man who gave a peasant a chance, he extended the opportunity to Yasuki as well to fight alongside the man doing what had never been done before. And Yasuki accepted. And while records are scarce as to what exactly he did for Nobunaga, it's believed that he reprised his role as a bodyguard for the Japanese warlord, and in the process, became quite close with him. In 1582, Nobunaga was caught in an ambush at a temple. But rather than face defeat, he took his own life through the ritual act known as seppuku. And not only was Yasuki in the building with him, he very well may have been the one to remove Nobunaga's head to save it from falling into enemy hands. This was something that only the nearest and dearest vassals would do, and of all the vassals Nobunaga had amassed at the time, it was Yasuki who had collected the head. It's fair to say that Yasuki kept his head in a critical moment. 
so much so that he ended up keeping two heads. It's unclear what, if any, larger chord Yasuki struck in a war-stricken Japan. After that ambush in 1582, there is no record of him whatsoever. He briefly served Nobunaga's son, but the younger daimyo followed his father to the grave. The last we hear of Yasuki, he was taken during a battle and led to a Jesuit camp. Perhaps he became a ronin, a masterless samurai, and wandered the land, or perhaps he settled into something loosely resembling a retirement. But whatever ended up happening to him, he would give the world one of its first glimpses at what it looks like when you actively engage in that simple principle of treating others the way you'd want to be treated. You see, Yasuki wasn't like other samurai, not just because he was not native to Japan, and not just because he was six foot tall and strong as a bull, but because he was from an African tribe, which made him the first ever black samurai. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.